everyone, welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. My name is Amelia Helt and I'll be one of your co-hosts for today and we are stoked about this episode of the podcast. It's really exciting, we've got a great announcement that comes along with it, uh, an incredible guest and so it's just a very, very exciting time for the whole team at OIO. But before we dive into that, let me introduce to you my co-host. You know him, you love him. Tim Silverwood. Hi, Tim. Are you pretty pumped for this one? I'm so excited for this one. Uh, obviously, we've just finished our Pitchfest 2021 podcast series, and now we're back with a, a quick little episode featuring a remarkable man from a phenomenal foundation that's going to empower OIO to do great things. It will indeed. And that guest is Dr. Tony Warby. He's the director of the Planet Portfolio and Flourishing Oceans Initiative at Mindaroo Foundation. And along with having this amazing guest on, the episode is, is such a great listen on many, many parts of it, which, uh, which just had me listening with bated breath. There's also a, a nice little announcement that comes along with that. And Tim, I don't know if you would perhaps like to do the honours. Yeah, sure. So we have already revealed the news recently over our socials and our and our blog and obviously on Mindaroo's site as well. But yeah, look, we've um, very excitedly announced a three-year partnership with Mindaroo Foundation to really help OIO scale our impact, to build our team and to ultimately improve ocean health. You know, take us back to, you know, two and a half, three years ago to, I guess, the foundation of um, Ocean Impact Organisation and you and Nick. Uh, yeah, the story sort of goes that way back a few years ago when Nick and I were spitballing how to build OIO, what it would look like and what would make it a success. And we used to use whiteboards and butcher's paper a lot. And on this, we had some key names of individuals and foundations that we figured would be that what we called a line of super credibility. If we could get that person involved in supporting our mission, then we're really on our way. And on that whiteboard way back in those early days was Mindaroo Foundation. So you can only uh, get a sense of just how proud it was for Nick, myself and the entire OIO team to build this relationship with Mindaroo Foundation and Dr. Tony Warby and to obviously pitch in an opportunity to partner with us for a few years and to now have that announced. So it is a very exciting, but really a very proud day for OIO. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, this is um, really exciting. And again, you know, our whole team is just um, ecstatic because this will allow us and empower us to double our original goal of accelerating 100 ocean impact startups and entrepreneurs in five years. So now we're, we're targeting 200 startups and entrepreneurs supported and accelerated by 2027. And that to me is just a huge thing. But what an incredible goal for us to be able to expand to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, our, our mission really is so simple at OIO. It's to support and accelerate ocean impact businesses. And so we know they're out there. These startups and entrepreneurs exist and increasingly they're coming to us because they realise that we are in a position to help support and accelerate them. So by building the team, by increasing our own capacity and capabilities, we can increase those initial targets. And remembering that that is just sort of one of our key goals is to support and accelerate 100 ocean impact startups. But really the big goals, the big hairy audacious goals 
uh, to see $100 million of funding enter this ecosystem and to put Australia on the map as a world leader in nurturing and exporting these ocean solutions. And I love in our press release and the kinds of messaging that Tony brought into the conversation is that that's exactly what we agree with too. We want to see Australia and it simply must be a powerhouse leader. So I love the work of Mindaroo Foundation. They've been doing a huge amount. They, they basically support 11 different key areas across all, all sorts of issues, social, environmental, medical, etc. But when it comes to the Flourishing Oceans Division, how good's their little mission statement? We exist to return the oceans to a flourishing state. If that doesn't get you excited as a big key mission statement, then I don't know what does, and it's so perfectly aligned to what OIO is here to do. That's it. And, I mean, to hear Tony uh, talk about it and the way it lights him up is just fantastic. I, You know, Tony is a guy who has that unique ability to be able to talk about uh, complex ideas very simply um, and to be able to kind of get that information to us on the ground that maybe, you know, don't know the academic side of it all. So um, this was a fascinating chat. I loved him talking about his time, which was, well, I say his time as 20 years or something in Antarctica doing research, but um, just fantastic and fascinating things. And this is someone who has seen the changes happen. And as he said, not actually firsthand, um, you know, he kind of said, like, if you go there, you're not necessarily seeing uh, the impact of the ocean warming by like looking at the ice. But he said we can tell from satellite imagery and, and other research that, you know, it's happening and it's causing quite devastating effects. So, but with that message, there's also a lot of hope. And that's another thing he's fantastic at, which is kind of saying, you know, I don't want to make everyone feel like it's it's hopeless. Um, and these are the things we can do and the things we must do to return the oceans to a flourishing state. You know, another good call out probably and a nice little segue to, to say to any of those ocean impact startups out there that if you are working on a solution that positively impacts planet ocean, we highly encourage you to check out PitchFest and you can sign up to that at ocean-impact.org forward slash PitchFest 2022. Um, and the other thing is that if you're someone that is just interested in the ocean, if you love it and you want to help protect it and you want to know the incredible work that's going on, uh, then also, you know, check out Mindaroo's website, which is a fantastic resource. Um, and their social media also is, is wonderful and really kind of um, dives into all that great work they're doing. And as someone that's from Perth, um, from Western Australia, you know, I'm very proud to say that um, we've seen great, obviously, work um, from Mindaroo in the deep ocean research um, and the the uh, lab or research uh, centre that they have in Exmouth for the, the Ningaloo Reef. So really cool stuff um, that kind of gets me feeling, I guess, slightly nerdy, but just really excited about the future of the ocean. <laughs> Yeah, and I just love that uh, you know, Mindaroo Foundation, we talk about our own big, hairy, audacious goals. You just got to look at some of the big, meaty projects that Mindaroo take on, like the global fishing watch that they're doing at the moment, trying to find out you know, what stocks are overfished and what's going to be required to actually enable sustainable harvesting of, of fish stocks from the ocean into the future. Global Plastic Watch, uh, you know, trying to figure out 
who are the biggest producers of plastic out there in the world and what could be done to try and stem the amount of petroleum being extracted from the earth to make plastic, which ultimately mostly ends up as being single-use items which end up uh, leaking into the environment and to the oceans and trying to identify hotspots for illegal dumping and poorly waste, poorly managed waste um, reserves around the planet. So yeah, they certainly don't mind you know, doing some great things close to shore, like you mentioned with the Exmouth uh, Research Lab, but they certainly don't mind tackling the big global challenges as well like they've done with human slavery and other areas as well. So amazing foundation that we're stoked to be working with and it's nice to sort of commence this relationship with a sit-down chat with Tony Warby who uh, really gives us an insight into what the Oceans Division is, is working on. Yeah, so everyone, take a listen. Let us know what you thought. As always, we love to know your feedback on these episodes. And a huge thank you to Tony and to the whole team at Mindaroo and from all of us and our team at OIO. We are just thrilled to be able to work with you guys and team up for a much bigger impact. So let's return the oceans to a flourishing state. <laughs> and we all agree with that. Thanks, yep. everyone. I'm thrilled to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today, Tony Warby, who is the director of the Planet Portfolio and the director of Flourishing Oceans at Mindaroo Foundation. Thanks for coming on the show, Tony. Thanks, Tim. Awesome to be here. Now, that is quite a job title. I'm going to put it over to you now to just tell the listeners a little bit about what this job that you have entails. Well, I arrived at Mindaroo a couple of years ago to lead the Flourishing Oceans program. So the director of Flourishing Oceans is the role that I have uh, leading that program, and uh, and we have the the bold ambition of returning the oceans to a flourishing state by 2030, and that's going to be most of what we talk about today, I expect. We also went through a, an organisational restructure um, at the start of 2022, and uh, out of that, uh, I also took on responsibility for what we call the broader planet portfolio. So all of the environmental work across the foundation that not only includes the oceans, but all of our fire and flood resilience work, uh, the work that we're doing on plastic waste, and a lot of the work that we're doing on climate change. So uh, I have broad responsibilities for all of that environmental work. Can't wait to talk more about the programs and initiatives that you've been working on too. I love this. How's this for a, a, a you know a big vision statement? Returning the oceans to a flourishing state by 2030. I get tingles just talking about it. But let's um get into this sort of bigger picture for people out there across the world who maybe don't know a lot about Mindaroo Foundation. Perhaps you could spend a bit of time telling us about Mindaroo and some of the initiatives that they're focused on. Yeah, sure. So Mindaroo is, uh, we're actually 21 years old this year. It was a foundation established by Andrew and Nicola Forrest quite a long time ago now. And it had very much a focus on early childhood education at the time. That was the, the passion for, for both Andrew and Nicola. And uh, it's really only been in the last five years, I would say, that Mindaroo has grown very significantly. Uh, Andrew and Nicola's generosity has now put more than two and a half billion that's with a B, uh, billion dollars into our corpus. And over time, we expect that that will grow. So there's a fantastic amount of money and generosity that's come from them to support the foundation. And the initiatives that we focus on or the programs of work that we focus on are very much aligned with the passions of the Forest family. Andrew is deeply passionate about the oceans. He's deeply passionate about the problems facing the world with plastic pollution 
Nicola's very, very passionate about early childhood education and arts and culture. Grace, their daughter, is a strong advocate for uh, Walk Free, which is the part of our um, foundation that focuses on modern slavery. And uh, probably it's probably one of the longest running programs of work next to the early childhood education. And uh, and then, you know, besides that, we also fund work in cancer research. We provide a lot of support to arts and culture. Uh, there's a big piece of work on Indigenous parity through our Generation One program. Uh, and so, yeah, a pretty broad remit, but no shortage of ambition against any of those areas of focus. It really is amazing. And obviously, as an organisation, OIO has, has really benefited from fantastic relationships with philanthropic foundations and that philanthropic community. And it just constantly amazes me the power and the capacity for this essentially funds to be just transformative in all these different areas and aspects. How big is Mindaroo Foundation in terms of the number of people working for the foundation and particularly on the, the flourishing ocean side of things? Yeah, we're, well, the foundation itself is about 200 staff now. Uh, so getting, you know, pretty large in terms of uh, the number of people who are focused on, on those priorities that I talked about. The Oceans program is about the largest, uh, both in terms of number of people and, and budget. Uh, we, we commit through the Flourishing Oceans program somewhere around $35 million a year towards uh, returning the oceans to a flourishing state. It sounds like a lot, but then you think about all the challenges that you have to grapple with, with overfishing and getting marine protected areas funded and you know all the things that I'm sure we'll talk about um, in this call. Um, you know, it's, it's incredibly useful and important funding that we have, but philanthropy, I think, as you know, I know, uh, is only ever going to get us part of the way to solving a lot of these problems. We have to mobilise a huge amount of government money. We have to mobilise a lot of private capital. But to your point, the real value that philanthropic funding can bring is that it's high risk. You know, we can step into spaces where others wouldn't step. Uh, we can take risks that others may not take if they need to guarantee a return on their capital. Um, governments tend to be risk averse, but we can go in and de-risk early stage investments. The business community can then follow us in. And so I think that's really the power of philanthropy. That's a fantastic role that, that we can play as a foundation. Yes, and with a lot more very rich people joining the list every day. I think I heard some statistic recently that it's like a billion, a new billionaire formed almost every hour, which I, we might need to fact check that one, but it's a, it's a pretty incredible rate. So we do need to make sure that people out there are setting a really high standard and precedent with, with giving to solve these great challenges that we face. And, and just on that, I think, you know, if I can channel Andrew and Nicola just for a moment, I think there was a point where they they gave anonymously. And I think Andrew would make this point if you were interviewing him, Tim, until someone said, you know, mate, if, you, if you're just giving your money away anonymously, you know, who's, who's going to know and who's going to follow your lead? And so I think, you know, that, that's, that's a really important message. We do have to uh, encourage wealthy people to be philanthropic with their funds. Um, there's a lot of great causes out there. Most philanthropists fund what they're passionate about. But partnerships are incredibly important. And, and partnerships between billionaires and family officers can be incredibly powerful. And uh, some of the biggest partnerships we've got um, are with other organisations that are, are funded through philanthropy. So 
Um, there's a definitely a multiplier effect there that we have to uh, to leverage. I want to ask this question around whether you ever sort of forecasted that this would be the type of role that you would be performing at this stage of your career, but maybe you can tie that into my next question, which is a bit of a, a deep dive into your career. It's very distinguished and really diverse, but really mostly governed around oceans and climate. So spend a bit of time, Tony, just telling us a little bit about your journey, which has ultimately led to you holding these very uh, powerful roles right now. Uh, well, I've always been passionate about the oceans, Tim. Uh, you know, as a, as a kid, I was a swimmer, a sailor. I was hopeless with anything round. So my hand-eye coordination or lack of it kind of led me to sailing, rowing, swimming, uh, anything that was, was involved in the water. And I studied oceanography at Flinders Uni as my undergraduate degree. And when I was uh, interested in doing honours, I knew I didn't want to do coastal estuarine kind of work. I wanted to do deep blue water oceanography. And I was very interested in Antarctica. So I packed my bags from Adelaide and headed to Tassie and, uh, and joined what was then the Institute of Antarctic and Southern Ocean Studies. Um, the short story is I, I stayed on, um, uh, got my PhD and somewhere in there also my dream job with the glaciology program at the Antarctic Division uh, was advertised and uh, and I spent 21 years, I think, with the Australian Antarctic Program, which is where the vast majority of my, my scientific and research career was undertaken. And I think the, um, you know, over time, the field programs that I was leading went from, you know, two people jumping over the side of a ship and taking an ice core occasionally to, you know, multi-million dollar, two-month, field programs that brought together scientists from all over the world to really study Antarctic sea ice in a huge amount of detail. And on those voyages, I was chief scientist and voyage leader, and I loved it. I loved the responsibility of pulling those programs together. I loved the responsibility of managing the people and the programs on board the voyage and being the interface between the scientists and the ship's crew and the captain and head office. And, and I just got a, a taste for managing people and programs. And really that was, that kick-started my, uh, my management career, which, you know, over time you take progressively bigger steps, um, working for bigger and bigger organizations. And the job before this one was obviously Director of Oceans and Atmosphere at CSIRO, which was uh, probably a role that I, I never would have aspired to as a, as a much younger scientist, um, but loved it. And then the opportunity, you know, I got to know Andrew, Andrew Forrest, while he was doing his PhD in marine science. And he would call me occasionally and we'd talk science and he'd ask me questions or he'd be looking for a tip on something or uh, somebody to put him in touch with on a, on a particular topic. And then one day it was a job offer, Tim, and um, the, the offer seemed too good to be true. And uh, I have absolutely no regrets in, in accepting it and taking this leap into a completely different sector for, you know, what's, I'm not washed up yet, but probably the last big hurrah of my career. Would you mind taking us back down to Antarctica, a place where you have so much knowledge and experience? Um, at 21 years, you mentioned there, and when was the last time you were down there and, and, and what sort of changes have occurred in that region from your earliest visits to now in 2022? So Antarctica is one of the most amazing places you can ever visit. Um, it's, I don't think it matters how many times you go down. I did 17 trips over 21 years and being away from home became 
increasingly challenging, but being in Antarctica didn't. It was never a challenge to be in Antarctica. It was it was just just the most amazing place to visit. The light is amazing. The the wildlife, the scenery, the quiet, um, just just extraordinary. I studied Antarctic sea ice, and you know some of the changes that we've seen, you know, both in the Arctic and the Antarctic are are very significant. Um, Arctic sea ice, of course, has changed dramatically in uh, in the last twenty or thirty years. I I know as a as an honors student, you know, kind of back in the what would it have been late eighties, I guess. You know, we talked about the the Arctic being just this heavy multi year area of ice where you know ice couldn't escape through the the straits, you know, into the into the Pacific and Atlantic oceans, and it just built up and accumulated over time. It was meters and meters thick. And now a lot of it's seasonal. So there's areas of the Arctic that, you know, really melt back almost to open water. You know, I don't know how far away until we see open water at the North Pole, but um, it's probably not that far away. And so the changes we've seen in the Arctic, absolutely extraordinary. They're a little less stark in the Antarctic, mostly observable through satellite data and how you follow trends in, in satellite data rather than what you can see on the ground. But I think you know, just from a glaciological perspective, some of the biggest changes around Antarctica is how the ice shelves are thinning. And that's driven by warmer ocean water um, melting the undersides of the ice. And that's only something that you can see from satellite data. You know, if you were sitting there on the top of those ice shelves, it wouldn't look very different. But we know from the data that um, those ice shelves are thinning. And over time, that will lead to more of them breaking off. It'll lead to more ice flowing from Antarctica into the sea. And uh, over the next 100 to 200 years, um, you know, that could be a very big contributor to sea level. Yeah. Fascinating stuff there. Um, yeah, it must be quite uh, challenging sometimes to fully uh, acknowledge just how much it's being transformed on your, on your watch and on our all collective watch. Let's maybe just go and um, go a little bit bigger and broader and talk about, I suppose, the, the state of the ocean on a, on a larger context. Now, that, that could be a, an hour-long podcast in itself, so maybe you want to link it back a little bit to some of those uh, projects and, and programs that you've been working on with Mindaroo. But, yeah, just give us a bit of a, a taste of the state of the ocean and some of those challenge areas that you really think we have a great mm -hmm. opportunity to, to enact some great change. Yeah, so it's um, it's easy to get depressed about the state of the ocean, and so I'm always torn between you know <laughs> giving the the stark reality, but you know also making sure there's a message of hope that we can do something about it, right? So um, the I think it almost doesn't matter which indicator of ocean health you look at, Tim. It's going in the wrong direction at the moment. Um, climate change is absolutely the biggest threat to the ocean. Um, we know that the ocean is warming. We know it's becoming more acidic. These things have been known for a very long time. Some of the impacts of warming, you know, I just talked about in terms of the impacts on, on Antarctic ice shelves. Um, but of course, it's also affecting coral reefs all around the world. There's only about half the reefs left that, you know, we had 100 years ago, and that's all heading in the wrong direction. We know that we're taking far too many fish out of the ocean. Um, most of the big fish are gone. People, a lot of people don't realize that, that you know, we've just decimated the big fish that sit at the top of the ecosystems that are essential for healthy e ecosystems, just like coral reefs are essential for healthy ecosystems. And so many of the other fish that we eat um, are also overfished. You know, see, um, 
Rindaroo published a global fishing index a bit over a year ago. And, you know, the, the really clear message that came out of that is that no country is doing enough to end overfishing. And we need to get rid of the subsidies that, you know, facilitate fishing on the high seas um, because it's not economic without, without, without those subsidies. We need to put much better management practices in place. And we know that when there are better management practices in place, seafood can be sustainably harvested. So, you know, we know what we need to do to address these problems. We've just got to get past the short-term view and the greed and the corruption that drives a lot of lot of bad practices. And then, you know, we've got all the issues with plastic as well. That's just a massive problem. We know that plastic pollution is having a devastating impact on wildlife in the oceans. We know that virgin production of plastic is increasing, you know, a few percent every year, year on year. Um, And much of it leaks into the environment because we don't place a value on an empty plastic bottle. Uh, some some places in Australia might have a 10% deposit scheme, but in many places around the world, there's just not the incentive to recycle it. And so one of the things that Mindaroo is working on is really trying to address that problem as far up the supply chain as we can. We are investing in plastic recycling facilities in a number of countries around the world, um, but we're also very focused on how do you redesign plastic to ensure that it can be recycled, that it doesn't contain the harmful chemicals that a lot of plastics do today. How do we uh, lobby for recycled plastic content, for example? So if all new plastic had to contain at least 30% recycled material, suddenly you develop a demand for recycled material that underpins the economics that you need to to invest in recycling infrastructure and collection and recycling infrastructure. So... I think, you know, what we have to do is take a really systems-based approach to all of these problems. You can't just fix one little thing because you might break something else. You've got to take a systems approach, whether it's fishing, overfishing, whether it's, you know, the issue around plastics, you've got to look at the whole supply chain. And I think that's where, you know, there's so much exciting opportunity and probably to skip ahead in the interview a little bit, that's why we're so excited about, um, you know, partnering with Ocean Impact Organisation, because some of the solutions that that will help solve these problems will, will come from investments in tech. Yeah, that's it. And that's a, a philosophy that obviously underpins OIO is that if there is potential for these solutions to be transformative, then why on earth would you put a barrier in place? You'd give them all the help they need to, to fail fast or to succeed. Yeah. With these programs and initiatives, um, obviously you have incredible personnel and incredible smarts in the room to determine how and what to focus on but sort of how are some of these initiatives decided upon is it a bit of a a collaboration obviously with family and their interests and and all the the leadership teams how do you decide to focus on you know tackling overfishing and and transparency in seafood supply or plastic pollution yeah it's a good question and there's no single answer to it some of it comes directly from andrew and nicola um, to be very clear i i think where we where we see opportunities that tackle entrenched issues. Uh, We like to say we challenge the impossible. We also like to say that we bite off more than we can chew and then chew like mad. So, you know, there is a level of ambition that is in the DNA of the organisation. And, you know, that's that gives you incredible scope to say, well, how do we tackle this problem of overfishing? 
Um, how do we take a systems approach? Who do we need to partner with in what geographic areas to solve which parts of the problem? How do we improve fisheries governance in different areas? And once you start taking that systems approach and you figure out which other organisations you might work with that has you know, people on the ground in a particular country or you know, where, where you might see an opportunity to improve the governance and you know the, the political door is ajar that will you know, help you get through and, and, and have the impact that you need. So it's a combination of being able to recognise where the problems are and what they are, a willingness to step into areas that others might shy away from, either because they're too high risk or you need a, you know, a longer term investment or there's no guarantee of success. Andrew is very fond of saying to everyone in Mindaroo, you know, you fail your way to the top of this organisation. And so it's nice to work in an environment where risk is encouraged and where as long as you've got a backup plan, you know, your, your kind of crazy plan A uh, will, will get some support. So it's, um, it, it really is about focusing on some of the, the biggest issues and, and knowing that we can be there for the long term, I guess, is, is another thing that we, I think, as a, a philanthropic organisation have to our advantage. It's so exciting. You know, we're, I'm just so pumped, I guess, about what OIO can achieve through the support of this of this partnership over the next few years. But just also, I think, just knowing what I've seen and the impact that's been made by Mindaroo in recent years and, and knowing it's it's really only going to be accelerating. So it's just an exciting time. You spoke obviously about some of those big initiatives there. There's also a lot you're doing in the in the research space as well. Maybe just give us a little bit more depth and breadth into some of the ocean initiatives that you've um, got the Flourishing Oceans team working on? Yeah, so I've talked a fair bit about fisheries. We have a, a great fisheries research team that's, um, you know, we'll republish our global fishing index every three years and we'll improve the methodology over time and we'll improve the, you know, the way we collect data. And, you know, the goal is to measure progress against SDG 14.4, which is to end overfishing by, by 2030 um, over time. We're also putting a huge amount of effort into um, environmental DNA. So one of our mountaintops is how do we revolutionise the way that we observe the ocean? And, you know, that needs to happen through the use of autonomous systems, autonomous vehicles, better sensing technology, remote sensing, and we believe environmental DNA as well. So, you know, the, the, the great promise of of oceanomics work is that you won't have to go out and drag a net through the ocean to figure out what's there. You can actually, you know, get a bucket of water and, and filter it and sequence the DNA that you collect from it. And then um, against the reference libraries that we're also building up with our partners, you'll be able to recognize what's in the, in the ocean um, from that environmental DNA. So there's a long way to go in developing that technology, but we've all, already made some great advances in being able to filter and sequence at sea. We've, we've tested instruments that were designed to be used on a lab bench, on a rolling ship. We know that, you know, we've, we've got some fantastic tech partners that we're working with in that space. And, uh, you know, later this year, we'll open our, our big partnership with U University of Western Australia. So there's basically a $40 million effort uh, going into this use of environmental DNA for, for marine observing. That links very closely to all of the work we're doing on marine protected areas. So we have a, a big global partnership with Conservation International and Pew and others 
to really improve or to grow the area of the ocean that's that's covered by marine protection by 18 million square kilometres by 2025. So we've got a huge pipeline of target areas all around the world that we're, we're focused on. We're also investing in a big deep sea research centre, uh, also with the University of Western Australia. Uh, we know so little about what's going on in the deep sea, Tim, and the, the threat of seabed mining is very real. The damage that could be done to ecosystems that establish over thousands of years is very real. So we need to understand much more about the value of those ecosystems, how they link to the broader ocean system, but also the earth system, um, so that we, we don't decimate vast areas of the seafloor in, in the quest for rare metals and rare earths that, you know, the green revolution might, you know, lead us to, towards. So there's this real paradox there, right? We're trying to reduce our emissions, remove to renewables and, and batteries, but we need all this, uh, all these extra minerals that, you know, the easy target is the seabed. Uh, our view is that we need to do a much better job of using and recycling uh, those minerals that we, that we have uh, already from, from uh, land-based mining. And... What else have we got? There's um, other big pieces of work that we're doing in plastics. You know, I mentioned that briefly before, you know, really trying to understand through clinical research the impact of the chemicals and the nanoparticles of plastics on, on long-term human health. And that's, that's pretty scary stuff, actually. If you look at fertility rates globally, they're plummeting. If you look at the, the rates of a lot of childhood um, diseases like ADHD and other other diseases, then there's there's a real question to be answered around the the role that chemical exposure is having and the plastics and chemicals, uh, even if they're just in microparticles that are leaching into your blood, because we all have microparticles of plastic in our blood. There's some real concerns there that we're we're really trying to understand as related to the the, the problems around plastics. Gosh, I'm just trying to picture what it must be like when you have your team retreats and get-togethers and start rubbing <laughs> shoulders with all the people working in these uh, these areas of the organisation. It must be pretty amazing, let alone the, the partner interactions. Yeah, it's fantastic. We we have just some, you know, we've recruited some fantastic people into the program now, people that have come out of very long and distinguished careers, whether it's in CSIRO or, you know, other academic institutions. People a little bit like me who you know, just thought that this would, the change of pace and the, the the change in ambition and kind of untying yourself a little bit from the whole peer review process and just into a more action-oriented, more nimble environment. And uh, it's, it's a pretty amazing space to be in. Where does that leave you, I suppose, if you give a bit of a, a snapshot or a synopsis of, of Australia's sort of current state and, and, and the role we're performing? I mean, does it sort of make you look at some of those systems that are really in place to, to make sure we're on top of these problems and, and you sort of look and go, gee, like there's, there's a really different way that you could be doing this if you just think outside the box? I mean, does do you have a bit of a perspective on Australia's current uh, state of play in addressing these big challenges? Yeah, I, it, it's patchy, I would say. I mean, we've obviously been stuck in the climate wars for a decade so there's an awful lot of great climate science that could have you know informed much better policies you know over a decade ago so you know the there's a lot of fantastic science being done but as as we all know it's naive to think that it's only science that informs the, the government of the day on policy so so you know the politics has been frustrating i think there's there's so much good research being done um, around australia as well organizations like ames and the universities and csiro all doing great work all working with industry partners 
but they move slower than than a philanthropic organization does you know we support a lot of great academic science you know don't get me wrong where we've invested in fantastic laboratories up in Exmouth and we run an expression of interest process for people to come up and work on Ningaloo Reef and, and the Exmouth Gulf and that's all intended to support you know high impact strategic peer-reviewed research that we still put a, a very high value on but we also want it to be research that you know the relevant government agency up there has said that they would benefit from in terms of EPA legislation or management of the reef or working with traditional owners on particular projects or how we might restore damaged parts of the reef where there's actually political support to do that so so we try very much to make that link between the the academic research that we're supporting and what decision makers are asking for in those particular areas. But you know, I think it's you know it's an ecosystem approach, isn't it? The way I would phrase it is every organization brings something different into the ecosystem. So the important thing is that we're working together and communicating and you know organizations like Ocean Impact Organization filling a really important niche now. Uh, we need to do a better job of getting the business community engaged in the ocean. Um, we've got some some big things happening in 2023 in that space. You know, I think the the links between ocean health and net zero and um, and the business community could be much stronger than they are. So this whole ocean nexus, climate, you know, nexus space for the business community is is something that we can really explore. And so I think you know, there's so much opportunity there. Uh, we just need to, you know, in the decade of of, of the oceans. Uh, we need to be bringing all of those stakeholders together so that we're we're hearing each other's voices. We all, we all come from a different perspective, but have something really unique to contribute, and we we need to be talking to each other. Yeah, and it certainly feels great. Obviously, OIO only two and a half years into our journey, but certainly in the last two years, there really does seem to be some brilliant momentum building around the ocean decade and Australia's role. So. And the climate wars are, you know, almost certainly behind us. I almost feel, you know, like I've got to touch wood just saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to say about the, you know, this partnership with, with OIO? You've obviously said some some lovely kind words already about you know, what it is that we're working on, our little niche that that appeals. But um, is there anything else about the the partnership and particularly how you really are going to help us, I guess, scale over the next three years, which is really, really powerful partnership to help us do that so um yeah we're thrilled but maybe you've got a couple more words to say well i think there's there's just such fantastic alignment in in our ambition i think uh tim and you know you're only two and a half years old but in a sense flourishing oceans program in mindaroo only really started in 2018 and we've kind of grown over that last two and a half three year period as well so i kind of feel like we're a bit of a startup as well in many respects a really nicely funded startup i have to say but you know, to my earlier point, we have to partner, right? And we're not well set up to do the, the kind of work that you're doing in terms of building capacity in the innovation system, kind of running your pitch fests, attracting kind of great entrepreneurial minds around programs of work. That's that's something we really want to see happen, but it's far better that we support you to do it than, than try and do it on our own. We, we just see huge value in the the capacity building that you're doing as well. And I think just creating this innovation mindset within the community and providing support for people to kind of, you know, switch their head into that space is incredibly important. And um, yeah, no, just delighted to be to be partnering with you and, and kicking that journey off. 
yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so much, I guess, about those earlier points too, about the, the business community as well and just sort of showing the business community what putting the ocean in your lens looking out looks like as well and obviously creating some of those opportunities for, for industry with, with new technology should they succeed. So, yes, we are pumped. Um, you spoke a little bit before about 2023. Is there anything else on the horizon for, for Flourishing Oceans or Mindaroo that you wanted to, to touch on today or any little teaser alerts? Yeah, so probably the, the space we're stepping into increasingly is, um, is the education space. Um, so working... Uh, to develop school curriculum materials. We've got a few movies and documentaries in the works that, you know, people will hear more about over the next few months and into 2023. Uh, one of the great things that Mindaroo has is, a, is an arm called Mindaroo Pictures. And so we do invest in uh, documentaries, movies that uh, help tell our story. Um, it's not always just about the story of Mindaroo, but um, things that Mindaroo is is very interested in. So we've got some some uh, some interesting projects underway um, that uh, uh, I, th I think will be really impactful. And part of the reason that we are investing in those is because we can then run impact campaigns around them. We can develop school curriculum materials around it. And so across a number of our programs of work where we're putting a lot of effort uh, into that space, uh, so that's probably the most emergent thing that we've that we've got coming down the pipe. We'll obviously stay committed to supporting all of the marine research that we're doing uh, around Western Australia and uh, and globally. But uh, yeah, there's 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 so many exciting things coming down the pipe. Fantastic. Well, we're all duly excited about that. Conscious, a um, couple of questions to go, Tony. Um, I love this little one here, an opportunity, I suppose, to share some words of advice or words of wisdom, because we do have lots of people tuning into this podcast who perhaps they're already in the research or in academia, but thinking about getting into commercializing technologies, or maybe they're just at the start of a journey and looking at people with a career uh, rap sheet like yours. Uh, any sort of words of advice for people out there who do want to work in this ocean impact space, but perhaps need a little bit of uh, wisdom down the tube. So maybe I'll reflect on some things I think I've done well and some things I think I could have done better over, over my career. What I would say is be prepared to take risks, be prepared to follow your heart, move around. You know, I've, I've changed jobs every three or four years, probably in, in the last you know, 10 to 15 years. And uh, some of those, it was a very hard decision. Some of it was a, it, it was an easy decision. Um, but every time that I left an organization, I truly can, can, I'm pretty sure I can put my hand on my heart and say I left it in a better place than, than when I came in. And so I think the, um, you know, just being, being prepared to take opportunities as they arise, even if they seem a bit risky, uh, is probably some, some great advice. Um, again, I'll channel Andrew, my boss, um, he'll say it's okay to have a crazy plan A as long as you've got a bulletproof plan B. So I think that's just great advice, especially for people stepping into this entrepreneurial uh, space where you're not quite sure if something's going to work. It doesn't matter if you fail, just you know, pull out all the stops before you fail. Don't fail alone. Make sure that you've asked every single person that you possibly can for help, whether it's advice, ideas, money, support, it doesn't matter what it is. But 
ask people for advice and, and support. And I suspect most of the time people say yes, people like to be asked. Um, so don't fail alone is a great piece of advice. And probably the thing I, I, don't, I wouldn't say I regret, Tim, but um, I would say find your voice on important issues uh, as soon as you can. It, it takes confidence to do that. Um, it's probably not a confidence I had very early in my career, but I definitely have it now. I'm very happy to speak up on issues that are important to me. And it doesn't matter if other people disagree, uh, as long as you have a well, a well researched and defensible position on important topics, then, um, then it's more important. In fact, the, dis the disagreements are probably more important than, you know, being in an echo chamber of like-minded people. I think uh, talking to the fishing community about marine protected areas is something we just have to do. A lot of fishers, uh, you know, they're against MPAs because they, they think you're taking away something from them, whereas in actual fact, it's, it's so important that we have marine protected areas in nursery zones so that those resources are protected for future generations, right? And so I think these are it's important where there's disagreements like that, that we find our voice, that we can have respectful discussions and understand each other's perspectives and find common ground. And so don't be afraid to speak up and, and have an opinion is, uh, is probably another great piece of advice. Uh, thank you so much, Tony. Wonderful, wonderful words of advice. Okay, pretty much the last question now where it's really just a chance for you to speak to anything that you wanted to touch on today but didn't. And if that doesn't, uh, isn't necessary, then let people know more about how they can learn more about your work and obviously support the organisation as well. Yeah, so well, I, I just want to say thanks, Tim, to, to you and Nick, um, not only for this opportunity and for the partnership opportunity, but for, you know, for really deciding to, to start Ocean Impact Organisation in the first place. I think you, you both identified a, a niche in the market and you stepped into it. And, you know, huge, huge thanks to you both for, for doing that. I think, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of information on the, on the website uh, about Mindaroo. You know, we're going to grow over time. Uh, we're going to become, you know, increasingly ambitious over time. We're going to be tackling some of the world's most intractable problems over the next decade. And, and we can't do it alone. So we're always interested in partnering opportunities. We're all, always interested in organisations that can advise and help and support the, the work that we're doing or, or that can partner with us. And um, we, we love leverage as much as the next person. So any like-minded organisations that, uh, that want to work with us, we, we absolutely welcome that. Thank you so much for your time today, Tony. Yes, I'll, I'll double down on that. The website is a fantastic resource and there's just so much there to take a proverbial deep dive into. But thank you for all your work. Thank you to everyone involved in Flourishing Oceans in Mindaroo. We can't wait to do some great stuff together over the next few years. And uh, thank you for your time. Awesome. Cheers, Tim. Thanks, mate. Can't take the ocean out of